0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning. This is Specific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, in Solomon Islands, nurses are leaving to take up jobs overseas, leaving authorities with a difficult choice, limit the migration or accept the impacts on local health services.
2: If the government has, has a lot of concern for the services to the people of this country, and so we will... Try our best to manage it
1: and new mothers can sometimes choose to use baby formula instead of breast milk but researchers fear the choice is not always a free one. They're vulnerable to the aggressive marketing that comes sometimes with
3: with infant formula and that can lead them sort of feeling like they need to do something
1: different. And the highly anticipated meeting between Pacific delegates and Japan over its dumping of nuclear wastewater in the Pacific has come and gone. But what exactly was the outcome of talks? We'll hear why there's some confusion in that regard. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. But first, to Fiji, where those persecuted under the former Bainimarama government say the country's new leaders should afford them clemency. Lawyers, human rights activists and other vocal opponents have fled the country, while others were charged and convicted on offences like sedition and treason. But since the Baini Marama era has come to an end, for now at least, questions remain on what should be done to those who felt targeted by his regime. Liam Fox with this report.
4: Frank Baini and his right-hand man, former Attorney General Ayaz Sayed Kayum, were never ones for criticism constructive or otherwise. That was especially the case during the years of military dictatorship after Mr Baini Marama seized power in a coup in 2006, but also when he became Prime Minister following the first post-coup election in 2014. Amnesty International's Pacific researcher Kate Schutzey says one of the ways the former government shut down criticism was to use the law.
5: We saw a lot of use of various pieces of legislation like even the Media Industry Development Act, um, the Public Order Act, uh, use of sedition and use of contempt of court to really silence critics of government at the time.
4: She says the new government should turn its attention to people convicted of offences like sedition and treason after voicing opposition to the former regime
5: certainly for those people that were um, prosecuted for political reasons or peacefully expressing those rights to freedom of expression, that they should be released or at least have some avenue to have those convictions um, reviewed and quashed.
4: Fijian lawyer Aman Ravindra Singh represented dozens of people charged with sedition under the former government and was himself a prominent critic of the Bainimarama regime. He fled the country in August last year after being found guilty of the criminal offence of contempt of court in a case connected to civil defamation proceedings filed against him by Mr Baini Marama and Mr Kayyum.
2: I remain a, an exile from my country, so uh, the tables have definitely turned on me and uh, right now this is life in exile, this is my reality at the moment.
4: Mr Singh has sought refuge in Australia while he appeals his conviction and a 10-month prison sentence. There's no doubt in his mind he was targeted because of his outspoken views and says the new government led by Sitovani Rambuka should help him and others in similar situations.
2: I feel the way forward is quite simple and straightforward. Uh, for those of us who stood up to the military dictatorship for the last 16 odd years, I think it's, uh, it's high time now to look at our plight. One of the positive ways forward would be to have a legislation in there which uh, would uh, make a finding on individuals. And if uh, the finding is that a person had been politically persecuted, then that person should be uh, freed from the shackles of what the dictatorship did.
4: Amnesty International's Kate Schutze says the new government should go further than just addressing previous cases of political persecution
5: going back and looking at past cases is one avenue of providing an appropriate remedy to those people most impacted, and they need to do that as a priority. But also, we say these laws need to be changed so that they're not used in the future, um, you know, on the whim of any government to persecute people.
4: Pacific Beat has sought comment from the new Attorney-General, Siromi Turanga.
5: That was
1: Liam Fox with that report. Pacific Beat. As demand for Pacific aged care nurses in Australia grows, Solomon Islands is trying to walk the fine line between sending workers overseas and ensuring local health systems are properly staffed. The departure of some senior nurses abroad is already having an impact on Solomon Islands health services. But, as Dobrovko voladeh reports, authorities say they will not force health staff to stay and work in the country. In Solomon Islands, nurses provide an essential
3: service to the community and their skills are in high demand, both locally and overseas. To prevent a possible exodus, the Ministry of Health is looking at ways to better manage the selection process of nurses wanting to work in aged care in Australia or going to countries like Vanuatu. Director of Nursing Michael Laroui says they want to avoid any negative impact on their health system.
2: Yes, the government has, has a lot of concern for the services to the people of this country and so we will Try our best to manage it, to ensure that uh, if there is migration of nurses, we will try and manage to ensure that that does not severely and negatively impact on the health service.
3: He says only a small number of senior specialist nurses have left, but it created a backlog in services for some time. He says with more planning to leave, it could create more problems. But at the same time, he rejected criticism about government planning to block nurses from going overseas.
2: That is my only call to my nurses, that um, I'm not in a position to stop any one of them. But uh, we will try and manage to ensure that uh, whatever happens, it does not uh, negatively have impact on the services that we provide. A
3: statement from the Ministry of Health says it's aware of and respects the rights of individual nurses – who may wish to resign and work elsewhere, including overseas. The ministry says in the event of a mass migration, they plan to prioritize nurses that are unemployed or retired. Newly registered nurses could also become part of the pool. Michael Laroy again.
2: Once they complete the registration, if there are vacancies existing with the done, yes, they can. If there are not enough vacancies, they will be also given the opportunity for them to, you know, explore joining this uh, this uh, group that's going to Australia. This will be put before them. Uh, we are also we're already planning this.
3: As of December last year, there have been 35,000 Pacific workers under the Palm scheme in Australia. The Australian Minister for Pacific Affairs, Pat Conroy, says aged care plays only a small part in the overall labour scheme but it's set to grow.
6: The goal is 500 so, by the end of this year. There's two trials pre-existing of about 80 workers, and as the goal of another mm. 500 workers. Tourism is there in hospitality, but it's fair to say that the two most significant industries are fruit picking and meat processing. Mm. It's great to feel labour shortages, but also equally great to skill up Pacific workers and send home money.
3: Some countries have been sending trained carers, while others have been sending nurses or both to work in aged care. Mr Conroy says it's up to individual countries to choose their pool of workers.
6: The country where the workers come from decide how many workers they send and it's their right to uh, slow down a bit.
3: Matthew Walley, the leader of the Solomon Islands opposition, however, says the government should have had better foresight.
2: It's important uh, that um, some mid- to long-term planning takes place. Uh, in the immediate short term, there will be a drain on experienced nurses. If they resign and want to go, they will go. Uh, that, I think, is, is a pain that uh, the healthcare system will have to live with, uh, but then plan in terms of training and registration of nurses um, going into the future, um, anticipating that there will be leakage, that there will be some nurses that will leave. He
3: says the country should accept and prepare for these scenarios. But with a high cost of living, biting household incomes and the higher pay for overseas workers, it's to be seen how many may want to stay and how many may
1: want to leave. Dubrovka Volodya with that report. Listening to Pacific Beat on this Thursday morning. Hope you're having a lovely day. A grassroots school in the northern Australian town of Alice Springs has been working behind the scenes to save an Aboriginal language at risk of being lost to the next generation. As Charmaine Allison reports, the young students are soaking it all up through song. Here she is. In a tiny Alice Springs
7: classroom, a group of children is singing in an ancient language. This is Pradham, an endangered Aboriginal dialect from country south of Alice Springs. There's only a handful of fluent Pradham speakers left in Australia. The language stamped out and silenced.
3: When they went to school, they were told not to speak their Pradham language And then that's the only language they knew was Prud'am. They didn't know anything about English. So when they sort of spoke to each other in um, Prud'am or whatever, um, they got in trouble for it or they got hit for it at school or whatever.
7: That's Charlene Swan. She grew up hearing her family speak the Prud'am language out bush. But while she understands it, Charlene says she never learned to speak it fluently. But she's among a group of community leaders working to revive the dialect teaching it to a group of young people, mostly through music. I just
8: feel so proud of myself that I'm learning my language, my
7: dad's language, my grandfather's language, and just passing it on to the next generation. Pradham woman Shania Armstrong is one of the school's apprentices. She's learning the language while also teaching it to the next generation. I really
8: love teaching my language. The kids love it. Every time they come to a class, they always have a smile on their face. and Because I also teach my
7: nieces and nephews, and they always ask me, Anishinaa, how do you say this in Pradham again? Launched in 2015, the Pradham School is a community-led language revival program empowering elders to pass their language and cultural knowledge to the next generations. For years, they've been teaching out of this classroom in Alice Springs, but now the group is fundraising to build a classroom on Perdam Country. Oriole Swan says it's been a long-held dream of her mother, Perdam matriarch Christabel Swan.
9: Well, my mum was asked by her friend, genie appeared, "What was your three wishes?" She reckoned to learn Perdam to her kids and great, and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren and her siblings' kids, and her siblings' grandchildren.
5: And um, when I heard that from her friend, I started crying because it was so emotional to hear that. So that was her dream. Look at her dream now, it's coming true.
7: Already, the group has raised almost $80,000 of their $300,000 goal for the new classroom build. It's hoped the classroom will connect the children back to their homelands and keep the Pardam language alive for generations to come. Shanika Swan is just one of the young students eager to learn and to share her new knowledge.
0: Pass it on so people can learn our language.
7: It's hoped the classroom won't just benefit students but the entire community, keeping a language alive on the land it came from.
8: And that means we are Pradham people, we have always been here and our language will never finish.
1: And that was Padam a woman Shania Armstrong and our reporter in Alice Springs was Charmaine Allison there. It's time uh, for that special segment in Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. Well, at least the news that we can't get to elsewhere in the show. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good
6: morning, Pranka. I was just listening to that last package. I always wish I could speak uh, another language. uh, You speak a few, don't you?
1: I I speak a couple, but not an Indigenous language um, here in Australia, and I'd love to learn one. So maybe Padam is for us. Maybe <laughs> yes, um, or perhaps perhaps a, a language here in um, in the First Nations from the First Nations people of Victoria would be great to learn. Um, we'll, we'll come we'll come to you and, and our listeners to see if we can test out some of our skills on the air. Um, but first, let's head to Papua New Guinea, because this is very um, interesting, a case that we've been following on Pacific Beat um, of a senior minister in the government there um, who's been, well, first he sued an Australian newspaper for defamation, but I understand he's won that suit now. Can you give us those details?
6: Yeah, so uh, Media Organization 9 uh, has been ordered to pay uh, PNG MP William Doomer, uh, uh. Five hundred and forty-five thousand um, dollars over a series of articles published back in twenty twenty. So this is reported by um, a number of outlets, including the Nine newspapers themselves, as well as uh, PNG's Post Courier. And the articles were published in the Australian Financial Review, who implied he acted corruptly while granting uh, an oil expo- exploration license to a multinational company uh, while he was the energy minister, uh, which led to a number of fellow MPs to actually call for his resignation. Thank <laughs> Um, Nine defended the articles, saying their journalists well, acted reasonably, uh, however the court ruled otherwise.
1: Mm, yes. Um, has Nine commented on this latest ruling?
6: Yeah, they did. So AFR's editor-in-chief actually expressed extreme disappointment. Um, they contended that the articles were sort of only conveyed that there were reasonable grounds to suspect questionable conduct, um, but never actually accused Mr. Doomer. Um, however, the justice says that essentially the articles were wash within your and that any ordinary reader would be encouraged to, to assume guilt, which is where a lot of these things sort of get muddy in terms of how you present information and not plan ideas uh, in the reader's minds, I guess. So, so yeah, interesting one.
1: Yes, yes, and um, as it's being reported, I understand he's the first Pacific political leader um, to win legal pre- proceedings against an Australian newspaper um, and I guess touches on um, Australia's media laws, which mm. are considered quite um strict when compared to other countries like the united states and that things like innuendo or or the the sort of suggestions that journalists can can um can convey through their articles um is is grounds for for a suit like this one so good reminders for for all media um people around the country you'll
6: walk a fine line i'm proud to say i'm yet to be sued so (laughs) (laughs) That,
1: that is good um me either, for the record. <laughs> um, now let's head to well, New Zealand. But I guess this is a Pacific-wide story because a record-breaking amount of illicit drugs has been found. This is amazing. Floating in the Pacific Ocean. How is that possible, Kyle?
6: Yeah, so 3.2 tonnes uh, uh, were found by New Zealand authorities. Uh, cocaine, that was as well, uh, worth $500 million. Like you said, just bobbling on the surface, uh, floating <laughs> in nets. Um, so, yeah, unbelievable. Uh, so this is reported by The Guardian. Uh, they believe the haul was actually bound for Australia, and it wouldn't, would have been enough enough cocaine to supply the country for an entire year. Um, It was also the largest seizure of illicit drugs made by any New Zealand law enforcement uh, by quite some margin, apparently. That's crazy.
1: I mean, this couldn't have been their plan to just hope it floated to Australia <laughs> and that people would pick it up. I'm sure it fell off some cargo. Um, I guess we don't know. Um, do do we know how they made the discovery at least? Yeah. Just spotted it floating, I guess.
6: <laughs> so, well, apparently it was actually a joint operation between uh, New Zealand police uh, and customs agents that uh, started back uh, in December that sort of revolved around, you know, investigating suspicious vessels and, uh, and things like that. So I guess that leads me to assume that maybe Maybe whoever these vessels were knew that they were being chased and just thought, oh, well, to hell with it. Let's just ditch the cargo and leave. Um, so the, the haul uh, arrived in New Zealand last Tuesday where it's going to be destroyed. But uh, but yeah, no arrests have been made. But look, I, I, fair to say a significant blow to the uh, criminal group uh, who originally owned it.
1: Mm, and a good um, a reminder for any anyone out in the Pacific there. Floating around if you see a, a strange, I guess, cargo of nets don't floating taste around it. as well. Yeah. yeah, don't taste it and call the authorities. It might be a year's worth of cocaine there. Um, now let's head to, well, the Pacific Games coming up in Solomon Islands, uh, September, is it, later on this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first time ever, Pacific Games have a living, breathing mascot. So tell us who it is, what it is.
6: That's right. So it's uh, it's Solo, as a matter of fact. Well, yeah. she she is Solo, I should say. Not named after Han Solo, for <laughs> any Star Wars fans out there. Um, so she's a 167-centimetre one, leatherback turtle uh, who will be the official face of the 2023 Pac Games uh, in November. Um and Souls was, uh, Solo was actually in the Souls recently where she, she laid her eggs before swimming to Vanuatu, where she actually arrived last week. Then she'll likely be headed off to Australia and uh, New Zealand. So she's been busy, uh, hence why there will be a stand-in mascot uh, sort of in a proper suit to carry out those official duties, um, such as that six-month tour through the Solomon Islands, which is taking place at the moment.
1: Uh, a Standard mascot of a leatherback turtle, I imagine?
6: That's correct, yeah, okay. of Solo.
1: All right, of Solo, yes, in in mascot and, well, original form. Um, do we know why organizers chose to do this, to choose Solo for this title?
6: Yeah, so leatherback turtles, they're native to the islands uh, in a lot of ways. It's fascinating reading. Um, so the turtles have actually been laying eggs on the same beaches in the Soles for thousands of years. Um, wow. They are the fastest, largest, uh, and most ancient of all sea turtles. They swim literally right across the world. I know Solo in particular, uh, she's been tracked from swimming as uh, as far as California
4: Wow! before before back
6: every year. It's unbelievable. Um, However, sadly, they are under threat, that particular species of turtle, um, thanks to just a lot of commercial harvesting in the latter half of the 20th century. So this campaign will, will sort of help conservation efforts as well as you know, placing them sort of front, front and center of people's minds.
1: Yes, and I, I did hear that the um, that solo was off to Vanuatu, I believe, um, now after after nesting. Um, yeah, it's amazing how they have almost these inbuilt GPS sensors mm. that tell them. You know, you've got to go back to this beach to lay your eggs, and then head here. Um, if you are, if you know the mascot solo, I'd love to speak to them. We don't know if he's a he or a she, I guess, <laughs> but. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to hear what it's like to, you know, emulate this real-life creature. Um, and I understand that the mascot has been travelling around um, the Solomon Islands. This is the human form of the leatherback of the turtle, by lots the way.
6: Lots of high fives, I imagine.
1: Yes, lots of high fives. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Well, well And what is it like? I imagine very sweaty in that in that mascot uniform. Yeah,
6: particularly out in the tropics as well. Yeah, mm. yeah.
1: Um, if you are the mascot listening in or if you know the mascot there in Solomon Islands, do get in touch. We'd love to speak uh, to the mascot version of Solo. Uh, invite them on the show go oh find out what it's like. Um, Thank you, Kyle, for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the region. But don't go anywhere. One big story that we've all been anticipating has been that meeting between delegates of the Pacific Islands Forum and Japan. Japan, of course, are are expected to discharge wastewater from that nuclear Fukushima disaster into the Pacific Ocean. It's been quite controversial. They're expected to do that well at the the start of this year. But um, we'll see See what the Pacific Islands Forum had to say about those meetings and negotiations around that matter coming up.
10: Eventually, I know it's going to hit. It's only a matter of time. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your home or your life isn't.
7: The time to prepare is now, not right before an emergency. Learn what to do before,
10: during and after natural disasters in this program aimed at keeping you safe.
6: am a survivor.
10: Pacific Prepared, Fridays at 8.30am PNG time here on ABC Radio Australia.
1: You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Experts are warning baby formula companies are exploiting new parents' anxieties in an effort to boost profits. New research published in medical journal The Lancet shows less than half of infants worldwide are being breastfed, as recommended by the World Health Organization's guidelines, while milk formula sales continue to rise. Rachel Hitter with this report.
10: The advertisements promise that baby formula is one of the best choices for parents, And new mothers can feel immense pressure around their feeding decisions. New research finds formula companies are capitalising on that vulnerability.
3: As a midwife, we would see the impacts of formula marketing on parents nearly sort of on a daily basis.
10: Liz Wilkes is Managing Director of My Midwives. A midwifery practice in Australia.
3: Women come in very frequently, feeling like they're under pressure to make sure that everything's perfect in the feeding journey, and that leaves them feeling quite vulnerable. And they're vulnerable to the aggressive marketing that comes sometimes with with infant formula, and that can lead them sort of feeling like they need to do something different. And formula can often be just a quick fix solution for them.
10: In a three-paper series published in the Lancet, an international team of scientists argue baby milk formula companies are exploiting parents' emotions and manipulating scientific information and policy makers to generate sales. And they're doing so at the expense of the health of mothers and their babies.
0: They're attempting to convince parents that things like fussiness, gas, uh, sleeplessness, these types of normal baby behaviours are actually pathological. And it's completely untrue they're trying to sell these specialised formulas as solutions to these normal baby behaviours.
10: Dr Phil Baker from Deakin University's Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition is the series lead author. He acknowledges that sometimes breastfeeding is not possible and that's okay.
0: Formula has a place, a role in society as a regulated food product for for women and families who are unable to breastfeed.
10: But he's calling for the urgent adoption of an international treaty to better regulate formula marketing.
0: The current arrangements are inadequate, shown to be ineffective and a much more comprehensive and stronger approach to regulating the marketing of this industry in Australia. Is urgently needed.
10: This country is one of only a few that hasn't implemented the World Health Organisation International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes international law. Instead, there's a voluntary code of conduct. Dr Baker says Australia, New Zealand, the United States and the European Union have lobbied against other countries adopting formula marketing regulation.
0: We've seen this in the World Trade Organisation where we saw many interventions by these countries, often including Australia, to block regulation in countries such as Thailand, for example. And this has weakened implementation of these regulations that the World Health Organization is calling for.
10: He says that's because Australia has a vested financial interest in protecting the formula industry in this country. The association representing formula manufacturers in Australia and New Zealand is the Infant Nutrition Council. In a statement, its CEO, Jan Kerry, says the claims are untrue and at no time since the Australian government became a signatory to the WHO code has the industry lobbied against regulating the code in Australia. Julie Smith is an associate professor with the Australian National University's National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health. She says the industry exploits shades of grey in the marketing
5: code. Sometimes the industry knows that the parents are about to have a baby almost before everybody else does. One of the things about the World Health Organization's code of marketing is that it bans contact with parents, direct contact with mothers. But the digital marketing has allowed the industry to really market directly to parents to track collecting data online about what parents internet behaviour is in order to target them. Carleen Gribble
10: is an adjunct associate professor at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. She says the detrimental impact of poor formula marketing regulation is writ large in China. They went from having a strong
3: breastfeeding culture 20, 25 years ago uh, to being a country where You know, they have very high rates of formula feeding, their breastfeeding rates have been decimated and um, it's a result of the marketing. A similar country, India, doesn't have the same issues. She says there
10: can be a high cost of not breastfeeding.
3: The consequences for children can be quite dire. It's around 820,000 or so uh, infants and young children who die each year around the world because they've not been able to be breastfed as recommended. And we also have increasing rates of women with breast cancer, which is uh, something that is, you know, that develops as a result, in some cases, of low breastfeeding over the
10: lifetime. The Infant Nutrition Council says formula was first developed more than 150 years ago to reduce infant mortality and morbidity for those babies who could not be breastfed. And the industry provides high-quality, safe and age-appropriate nutrition for infants. It says it recognises that breastfeeding is the normal way to feed infants. But when an infant is not given breast milk, the only suitable and safe alternative is a scientifically developed infant formula product.
1: That was a Rachel Heater with that report. Listening to Pacific Beat. And earlier in the show, we heard about the impact of nurses migrating overseas and the impact that's having on Solomon Islands healthcare. But I've got a story for you about one such nurse studying in Australia who's keen to make sure her newly acquired skills will help communities in her home. As a young public health worker in Solomon Islands, Lenique Pitasua saw the need for mothers and babies in rural areas to access effective maternal care. She hopes to help make that happen soon once she finishes her master's degree in Australia and returns home. Reporter Dubrovka Volader spoke to the 24-year-old about her journey so far.
8: After doing my degree at the Fiji National University, I returned home. And then I applied to WHO, the World Health Organization country office, and I managed to um, get in supporting first the non-communicable disease programs um, of the Ministry of Health. And then I moved to the communicable disease programs where I, I was a public health officer and I supported specifically the Ministry of Health tuberculosis and HIV hepatitis programs In implementing their activities throughout the country.
3: And tell me a bit about that work and the challenges you faced or some of the highlights. During my time there,
8: because I was really young, there was a lot of mentors that I have, both in WHO and the Ministry of Health. Some highlights were during the COVID pandemic. As you know, the most of health resources, and not only the resources in health, but also other sectors of the government, were repurposed for COVID-19. The work plans and the activities and service deliveries for health in areas like tuberculosis, testing and treatment, and treatment for hepatitis patients in Islands, were disrupted. I assisted in bringing in emergency drugs, emergency drugs for TB, HIV, and also commodities, because the gene experts that we used, the machines for testing tuberculosis were all repurposed to test for COVID. <laughs> this disrupted um, tuberculosis services and um, Solomon Islands is the second country um, after Papua New Guinea for having high numbers of tuberculosis. So this is a threat to um, the treatment of patients also. So I helped to bring in emergency drugs during the pandemic to help keep the patients to survive and have treatment. I worked with a technical working group um, that consisted of donor partners, such as DFAT Global Fund and the Ministry of Health. And we applied for a COVID-19 response funding for these communicable disease programs from from the Global Fund. And during the pandemic, we were able to get approximately, it's nearly about 2 million United States dollars USD, to support the communicable disease programs, so so Solomon's health system is a that the tuberculosis program is a vertical program. Provinces are responsible for treating the patients that that live in the provinces. So I guess um, it made a really big difference for for the tuberculosis program in bringing in these drugs and commodities because the supply chain for these diseases were affected uh, without the like normal flights bringing in drugs. With the work that I did in helping bringing in these um, emergency drugs, it really helped the provinces to um, treat their patients. All the health workers were overwhelmed um, during the pandemic. And I guess with the support in giving them the resources that they need, the testing equipments and the support that they need really um, helped push them through doing the work for for the people in in Solomon Islands, especially um, treating those and testing those with TB.
3: You're now currently doing a master's in public health in Australia. What made you decide that you want to embark on studying?
8: I Just to take you back, I, I did a degree in diet and nutrition, and it's kind of funny because I changed to communicable disease. The country did not have, I mean, the, the health system rather, um, did not have a, a unit for, for nutrition, not like Fiji that has a nutrition unit on its own. So it, it was quite hard for me to get, get a job with my degree. So when I went to work for uh, WHO and I supported the communicable disease, I I I've, I've always wanted to work in the health health workforce. So after being with WHO, I came to a realization that pursuing further studies and doing a master's of public health would add value to my current career path and and health is is an important sector in the Solomon Islands. I I say this without being biased. Um, it was and, and it always will be and with a with recent global pandemic, it was evident that there was a need for a strong, strong health system. And a classic example would be during the height of the pandemic, when nearly all of the health resources were prioritized for COVID-19, and there was a negative impact in other non-COVID um, health care services. So studying a Master's of Public Health here at ANU would provide me with with the knowledge and skills to improve and influence um, relevant health policies that would improve um, public health and health service delivery in the country, so that
3: um, yeah, our country can be a healthy nation. And um, you are seen as a leader, and you've you know you're taking part in a in a leadership um, program. How would you describe yourself as a leader? I'm looking forward to help
8: learn from other women's experience, but um to me as a as a leader my my previous work um i s I saw that like having a collaborative relationship with with partners and being able to um understand who you're working with I think that really helped me to successfully um support the 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 people that I work
3: with um the ministry of health you are doing the masters now you've got one and a half years um left of studying. How do you envisage your future? Is there anything that you think you would love to achieve? Anything that you want to
8: tackle? One thing that I, I really think I want to do when I when I return to the Solomon Islands is to enable women and children to have easy and safe access to, to health services and to lessen the catastrophic impact of out-of-pocket payments um, for people seeking health care. And this can be done by bringing down the the del- uh, health service deliveries to the rural communities in Solomon Island. So I guess that's one thing I want to help the country strengthen when I return.
1: That was Lenique Petasua speaking there to Dubrovka Volodya. Delegates of the Pacific Islands Forum have met in Japan to discuss the controversial dumping of 1 million tonnes, or in fact over 1 million tonnes, of nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. So what has been the outcome of the talks? To find out, we're joined by Islands Business Correspondent and author of Grappling with the Bomb, Nick McClellan. Nick, welcome to Pacific Beat.
9: Good morning, Priyanka.
1: Good morning to you. Now, I want to start, Nick, by reading a segment of the PIF statement, the outcome of this Japan meeting, to you. It says, The PIF delegation welcomed assurance that Japan will not discharge the treated nuclear wastewater until such a time that is it is verifiably safe to do so, and based on a relationship built of trust and in the spirit of friendship. Now, that was released just yesterday. Uh, Nick, what do you make of that statement? Do we know the outcome of these talks?
9: Well, the Japan Ministry of Foreign Affairs also put out a statement following the meeting between uh, Prime Minister Kishida and the forum delegation, which was led by the incoming forum chair, uh, Prime Minister Mark Brown of Cook Islands. Uh, The Japan statement is a lot shorter (laughs) and um, doesn't make similar commitments. It simply says... uh, that the discharge will not be allowed in a manner that endangers the lives of Japanese citizens or those of citizens in Pacific Island countries. And, you know, this has been at the heart of the dispute um, for the last couple of years, ever since Japan in early 2021 announced that they were going to discharge this cooling water from the stricken um, uh, Fukushima nuclear reactor that was very badly damaged in 2011. Mm. Um you know they're talking about a forty year program to discharge cooling water which has been stored at the Fukushima site, and that's of grave concern for many Pacific island countries, particularly around potential impacts on fisheries and also perceived damage. Japan has said that the water will be treated through a liquid processing system that um, will remove radioactive isotopes, but the forum established a uh, an independent scientific panel last year to look at the uh, information provided by Japan. And um, a memo from that panel shows that Japan has really not been very transparent about the full impacts. And indeed, the data provided to the forum at this stage has been uh, significantly lacking in detail. Um, There are a whole lot of unanswered questions. And so this visit was a very important step.
0: Mm. The
9: bottom line, however, is Japan has not said that they will halt the program.
1: Yes, yes. Um, so I guess from what we understand, the discharge could, could happen soon. Is that right, Nick? Um, is that why these negotiations were so important?
9: There is some delay on the, the Japanese end. Um, um, originally, the, at the time of the original announcement, it was proposed that the um, dumping of, of water from storage tanks at Fukushima into the Pacific would begin uh, in March or April this year. Um, Japan has already announced that that's going to be deferred. They haven't set a date when they propose uh, to begin the dumping program, although since last August they have begun construction of um, a a pipeline and systems that will take the water out into the Pacific. Um, So Japan is still moving ahead with uh, uh, proposals uh, to do this. However, There are significant political pressures, not just from the Pacific Islands Forum, but from neighboring countries like China and Korea, who are concerned about this proposal. There is also a whole range of technical problems that um, um, uh, Japan is facing in dealing with getting a system that can remove not just just, uh, tritium, which is the major isotope that will be put into the Pacific, but all radioactive isotopes. And on the data already provided by Japan to the Pacific Islands Forum scientific panel, there are a range of uh, radioactive isotopes in the tanks, uh, indeed uh, significant ones in terms of strontium, cesium 137 and so on, which uh, um, can cause significant health problems. Mm. Um, The panel has also raised real concerns that uh, the models Japan has used about safety are faulty. Mm. They... Uh, Japan hopes that the tritium, which is the largest amount that will be pumped into the Pacific, will dilute and disperse. But the model they've used is based on drinking water. Um, the panel has raised concerns that Japan has not done studies about the accumulation of tritium and other isotopes in marine uh, in fisheries, in marine biota, in the sediments of the ocean. This is a program that will continue for 40 years, and that's why there's pressure from the forum uh, to get it right.
1: Mm, yes, I mean considering that pressure and and this independent panel put to, together by um, the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, what what was the Pacific Islands Forum going to Japan and lobbying for? From the outcome statements, I know these things often happen behind the scenes, but when we read the outcome statements, there isn't any talk about you know um, fears and some of those concerns that you outlined there, Nick. Do we know if the Pacific Islands Forum is united in their opposition to the dumping?
9: Look, the, the forum did get some positive outcomes of this uh, delegation. Um, you know, Prime Minister Brown, uh, the forum chair, reaffirmed requests for more time and data to allow the independent panel to continue its work. Um, and Japan apparently has agreed to further exchange of information with the panelists. Um, there's an agreement that their science should guide the decision on the discharge. Um, and uh, Japan will also support the International Atomic Energy Agency experts to meet with the uh, Pacific panel of five scientists. Um, but Japan's under a lot of pressure. You know, This is uh, TEPCO, the uh, company, Tokyo Electric Power Company that runs this project, is under massive financial pressure to get this going. Um, since 2011, they've spent 12 trillion yen. That's about $120 billion Australian dollars on cleaning up the Fukushima site site decontamination and so on. Um, That's going to continue for decades and decades, and already the Japanese government has given 10 trillion yen to TEPCO in no interest loans, um, but TEPCO can't pay those back. So they're under enormous pressure to move ahead with the cheapest, quickest method to deal with the (laughs) storage tanks, more Mm than 1,000 storage tanks holding contaminated cooling water. And this process is continuing. Japan's trying to do this on the cheap, and um, the dilemma for the forum is: Japan is a major donor to forum Island countries. Um, it's one of the largest aid donors, uh, particularly through loans. Um, number three lender to Pacific Island countries. Uh, at the last figures, they gave more than three hundred and twenty-eight million dollars in loans to Pacific Island countries. Japan is also a major a player within the Asian Development Bank, which is the number two lender to Pacific <laughs> Island countries. Um, the ADB president, Mr. Asakawa, uh, is a former aide to the late Shinzo Abe, the former Prime Minister of Japan, and a Japanese chairperson of the ADB's board of directors. And more than half of all contracts for goods and works um, for programs by the ADB, contracts, loans, grants in the region, um, went to Japanese contractors.
1: Oh well wow. so And Japan and,
9: has a lot of influence can, I mean, in consi- the region.
1: Considering that, do you think that influence might might sway how countries think about this issue?
9: Well, it's it's a worrying feature that um, just three days, uh, three or four days before um, uh, the forum delegation met with Prime Minister Kushida in Tokyo, uh, he also met with uh, FSM President David Panuelo from uh, the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, and after the meeting, Panuelo stated publicly that he was appreciative of Japan for its, quote, transparent and substantive briefings on the liquid processing um, system that, that Japan is planning to use for this contaminated nuclear wastewater. And he said that our country is no longer fearful or concerned about this issue. Now, um, you know, Japan is a significant donor to FSM. Uh, obviously, the United States is the, the largest donor, but Japan is a a major player, and indeed in June last year, Japan announced that they would be providing four patrol boats, uh, one to each state within the FSM, to um, uh, uh, patrol uh, maritime zones. Um, Coming out of the meeting on the 2nd of February, um, Prime Minister, uh, President Panuelo walked away with uh, um, $2.5 million in other aid projects uh, that Japan was offering. Um, A suspicious mind might suggest that Japan is trying to promote divide and conquer um, to break the unity of Pacific Island Forum leaders about this crucial issue of nuclear safety. And this comes at a time where there's going debate about anti-nuclear issues uh, in the region with Australia planning to uh, purchase nuclear submarines um, with growing tensions uh, between the United States, China and Russia, um, debate over the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, You know, this planned waste dumping into the Pacific Ocean, the the blue Pacific continent, is really undercutting Japan's diplomacy at a time that it's working with the United States and Australia on trilateral infrastructure programs and. uh, really forging off uh, Chinese influence in the region.
1: Mm, Yes, interesting, Nick. I actually wanted to ask you about that wider um, nuclear legacy in the Pacific. But if you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat, my guest this morning is Islands Business Correspondent Nick McClellan. We're talking about that planned dumping of nuclear wastewater, treated nuclear wastewater by Japan. Um, This is off the back of a um, PIF delegation that went to Japan to discuss uh, their uh, concerns and opposition to that discharge. um, now, Nick, you're also the author of um, "Grappling with the Bomb," that looks at the nuclear bomb testing in the Pacific. And I understand some people, some commentators, have made some parallels between that testing and what's happening now with this planned discharge of nuclear wastewater. What do you think uh, about that? Are we seeing some uh, echoes of the past uh, in these current dis- discussions?
9: Absolutely. One problem is that the Pacific has often been portrayed as this vast, empty space. And indeed, in the second half of the 20th century, major powers like the United States, United Kingdom, France conducted their nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific because it was perceived as having low population area. Now, we know that's just not true. There are millions of people living across this vast Pacific. Um, Mm. It's also uh, a, a transgenerational and transboundary impact. You know, countries like the Marshall Islands are living with the legacy of uh, 67 nuclear tests by the United States uh, back in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, Indeed, Australia this year is the 70th anniversary of British nuclear testing in uh, South Australia, which impacted on uh, indigenous peoples. Um, And it's notable that um, in the delegation uh, this week to Japan, uh, the Marshall Islands foreign minister was uh, involved because the Marshallese people are still living with the health and environmental consequences of this. Mm. There's very strong anti-nuclear sentiment across the region and indeed uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand and nine forum island countries and territories have ratified the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Kiribati's leading activity um, around uh, nuclear survivors uh, and assistance to nuclear survivors, which is a key element of this anti-nuclear principle. Uh, The forum has called on the United States to ratify the three protocols of the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. The United States is the only one of the major nuclear weapon states that has refused to do so. Um, Russia, China, France, Britain have all ratified the the SPIN-FIS protocols. The United States has not done so. Mm. Um, So there's been a real focus on climate diplomacy in recent years because of the major security threat of climate change. But I think we're seeing because of AUKUS, because of this Japanese waste dumping proposal, because of growing international concern over nuclear proliferation, that this nuclear issue is back on the regional agenda and you only have to look at forum communiques about this. This will certainly be discussed at the uh, special leaders meeting to be held in March uh, um, of the forum and, uh, you know, this nuclear question is not going away simply Mm -hmm. because Pacific peoples are living with the legacy of uh, nuclear waste dumping, nuclear testing, and the proliferation of nuclear weapons.
1: Yes, very Um, interesting. There's very
9: strong anti nuclear sentiment.
1: Yes, yes, uh, considering that legacy. Uh, Nika, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat.
9: Thank you, Priyanka.
1: Uh, That was Islands Business Correspondent Nick McClellan speaking to us there about that planned dumping of uh, Fukushima's uh, treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. As he said, we can expect a uh, upcoming meeting on uh, where that issue will be, uh, I'm sure, uh, on the agenda uh, in March that Pacific Islands uh, meeting is happening. Uh, Thank you so much for your company this Thursday morning. We're at the end of the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Tomorrow, You'll be joined by Richard Ewitt with a special sports version of Pacific Beat. Until then, have a lovely day.